Our Bible reading this morning is three passages from the first chapter of the book of Job, verses 1 to 4, 6 to 11, and 13 to 22. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest, son, or the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Morning, everyone. Ian has already said about how disorientating it is being in a different building. And I have to tell you that the worst news has still to come to you. There's not a clock for the preacher to follow. <laughs> so maybe is there someone here could set their phone alarm to maybe 12.30, 12.45, th something like that? I will try and keep an eye on my watch. 
over this year, uh, unless you've been in a sort of a uh, unconscious or a bit of a coma, you'll have realized that we're following the theme of hope. Sermons, activities, outreach are all following this theme. And on Sundays, we've been following different aspects of hope and been encouraged by stories of hope in people's lives, different aspects as we've looked at the teaching from Scripture. We've even had science lessons from um, various speakers and maybe as you've thought back on your science lessons at school, maybe they weren't as interesting. Your teachers weren't as enthusiastic as the lessons that we've been blessed with here. With apologies to science teachers, I thought uh, this was uh, worth looking at, okay? But our theme verse for the, year, for the year is Romans 13, 15 and 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure all of us would immediately respond by saying, that's what I want in my life. I want to be filled with hope. I want to overflow with joy and peace. And wouldn't it be great if that was infectious and spilled out from me to my work uh, colleagues, to my family, to my neighbours. I think if that was the case with us, then there'd actually be a queue of people wanting to get in every Sunday morning because it would be so uh, winsome and people would so much want to be part of that. But is overflowing with hope a reality in your life or in mine? So I think we need to start by looking a little bit at hope and what we mean by it. Because the type of hope that's referred to here is much more than a positive, optimistic outlook on life, wishful thinking. I always hope that Ireland will win the rugby. But what's that based on? Optimism? Patriotism? Wishful thinking, certainly. Certainly not on past results. It's much different from a person being a half-filled or a glass-half-filled type of person, and much more than temperament or someone who's bubbly, effervescent, always seeming to be on top of every situation that life can throw at them, because we know that very often that's simply a shallow facade. So the hope we're referring to in the scripture is not just psychological or temperamental. To be overflowing with hope that's genuine, that will have an impact on ourselves and others, it must be based on something that's steadfast, reliable, doesn't alter, is constant. Not circumstances, people, self-help, a change of thinking and behavioral patterns, or attitudes. If we return to our theme verse that Paul wrote to the Romans, he says that it's based, our hope, on a God of hope. We overflow with hope if our commitment and trust is in the God of hope. We've been singing about that. What an incredible song. An all-powerful, all-knowing God who's full of grace, compassion, and justice and will reign forever. That's the basis of our hope. But is it head knowledge or heart knowledge with us? 
Again, it's relatively easy to maintain an outlook of hope when life is treating us well. But how do we cope when our circumstances challenge our theology and everything we believed about God is turned on its head? When suffering, loss, silence from God and a dark cloud covers our lives, simplistic answers or cliches don't cut it. There's a complex cocktail of interacting forces and reactions that we need to examine. And that's why we're looking this morning at the life of Job. It would have been great if we could have read through the entire entire book, but we can't. But I'll dip in and out of various chapters. But when we first meet him in chapter 1, we see a man living a life that appears to be most blessed, rich, healthy, a large close-knit family, a respected pillar of the community. However, all that is taken away from him, and he's taken on a devastating journey that challenges much of his theology and beliefs he's developed in God during the good times. His losses are colossal, as his livestock, livelihood, and family are all taken away, as we've read. He responds by the verse at the end of chapter 1. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall, uh, I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The suffering then in chapter 2 takes a turn even more for the worse as it becomes even more intensely personal and Job loses his health. We won't read through the list of ailments that he had, but they all stem from these painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And that eventually leads to even losing the support of those nearest and dearest to him. Because on top of this physical misery and loss that Job has suffered, in chapter 2 we read where his wife turns to him and says, Job, curse God and die. Then his comforters, so-called comforters, enter the, the scene and we're all aware of the expression Job's comforters because they are not a comfort at all as it works out, because they accuse Job of harboring sin in his life. That's the reason you're suffering, Job, because you are sinful. You see, the problem of suffering can be posed in these terms. If God is all good, it is said he must wish to abolish all suffering. Goodness and suffering shouldn't go together. Then if God is all-knowing, There's no suffering happening anywhere or to anyone that God doesn't know about. And if he's all-powerful, then he should be able to stop that suffering. Therefore, and so the theory goes, because suffering exists in the world, the idea of an omniscient, all-powerful, good God is untenable and incoherent. God cannot be all three, it is said. But this is the discovery 
that Job and the book of Job takes us through if we follow with him. You see, suffering, loss, injustice, evil are only problems to a person of faith in a good God. To the atheist, the fatalist, suffering's a tragedy, a disaster, an absurdity even, but it doesn't cause a crisis of faith. This is the preserve of a person who trusts that God is good, sovereign and just. As well, so long as suffering occurs out there and to other people, it can remain theoretical, conceptual. But when it affects me personally, that's when it becomes an even bigger problem. And trying to hold on to hope in circumstances of despair, anguish, and pain can cause a believer many difficulties. With Job, it was his faith that became the biggest problem of all because it wasn't relieving his suffering. In fact, it was making it worse because Job's faith was based on God providing good things for him, God taking care of him, God being a God of justice, mercy, and goodness. Now Job had to try and square his faith with this new desperate situation that he was finding himself in, this situation of extreme loss. Everything Job believed about God is being called into question. To further compound the problem, heaven appeared to be silent. Job was crying to God and there was no answer. He was taken to the edge and there are no easy answers to the problem of suffering and pain in the book of Job. But if we stick with it, it will open up ways for us into the struggle for men and women of faith. It will show us how one man came through the storms to be filled with hope and to retain his hope and enabled by grace to live with his questions. Let's follow the path of Job and the path that he took. We sometimes talk about people coming to terms with a situation. That wasn't the case in Job's life. He wasn't trying to come to terms, but he was trying to live in a new world. He was grieving over loss and tragedy. And his journey follows a classic uh, pattern of someone coping with grief. But as is normal in such circumstances, it's not a linear progression. At times, Job seems to be making progress only to regress on his spiral of grief, anger, and desperation for answers. As I said earlier, it'd be great to be able to read right through the book, but there are 40 chapters, so I will spare you that this morning. But I would encourage you, it isn't the easiest of reads, but it follows a fascinating pattern. Let's follow Job on this spiral of grief that he's on and coping, learning to cope with that grief. Because the first thing we note is numbness. Beginning in chapter two, Job sits for seven days on his ash heap in total silence. He's in a state of shock, unbelief. He really can't take in the losses that have happened in his life. Gradually, that leads to a stage of questioning, a searching for some meaning. 
what is going on? Again and again, Job asks the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to me right now? What is the reason? By chapters 6 and 7, that questioning has turned to anger. That's often the flip side of depression. Job expresses the view that not only the world, but also God is against him. He longs to die. He accuses his friends of being as useful as a dry river valley in the summer. A huge disappointment. And in the depths of despair, as Job searches for answers, he begins to think that he has been abandoned by God. And he cries, I cannot perceive him. Why is God not answering my questions? Why am I suffering in this way? He even reaches a stage where he wishes he hadn't been born. Why then did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before any eye had seen me. Chapter 10, verse 18. And feeling abandoned and misunderstood, Job is in the dark pit of despair and depression. It's flooding over him like a dark cloud as he has become self-absorbed and cannot see beyond his own miserable treatment or predicament. And with a sense of hopelessness, he cries in chapter 14, verse 19, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy a person's hope. This is a series of keeping hope and finding hope, yet at this stage in the journey, Job is saying that God has destroyed his hope. He's in a state of depression. And that's one of the worst pains a human being can face. It affects everyone differently, but it can manifest itself by a deep blackness over the mind and heart, a sense of personal worthlessness, hopelessness, troubled sleep, loss of appetite, lethargy, loss of motivation, or lack of motivation, a constant uncontrolled weeping, even a desire for the release of death. These add up to an illness of the mind, which at times becomes almost unutterably bearable, unbearable. Depression can be related to body chemistry, an imbalance in, in our bodies, but in Job's case, it was reactive. Reactive to the condition of the tragedy he was facing. And he pleads for pity. Chapter 19, he says, have pity on me, my friends, have pity for the God, the hand of God has struck me. Can you feel Job's loneliness, his isolation? At that stage then, Job turns to criticizing his perception of God and how God is ruling the world. Because to Job, as he looks around, he thinks wicked people are prospering while good people suffer. And these are questions, no doubt, I think absolutely every one of us here have faced at one time or another. Why is this happening to that person that we know is so good? Ignoring those questions doesn't help. They're important for us as we grow 
in our hope and in our trust of God. Yet, as we follow through the book of Job, it doesn't answer those questions directly. It doesn't tell us how to justify God's ways in the face of suffering. Indeed, it doesn't even pose the questions as theoretical ones with theological answers. The story unfolds as personal painful questions impinge on a man in turmoil. Job's problem is not so much a questioning of understanding on an intellectual plane as a crisis in his living relationship with the living God. And so a key lesson of the book of Job teaches us that there may be questions for which there are no answers this side of heaven and problems which human logic cannot solve. When God does eventually make himself known to Job, it's in a gracious personal encounter that invites a personal response. We have to wait until chapter 33 until that begins to reveal itself. And it comes through not one of the three original comforters, but a younger man called Elihu. He has kept his silence to show respect for his elders. But by chapter 33, he can't hold it in any longer. And so he begins to speak. And he thinks that the three original comforters have got it all wrong. And while there's a lot of self-righteousness and pomposity in Elihu and what he says, there are also some real gems. And he tells that his interpretation of God's purpose in suffering is to turn back his soul from the pit that the light of light may shine on him. Again, he says, those who suffer, he delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. And so in these comments, Elihu is turning the focus back from why is suffering happening to the purpose of suffering. That through the very purpose or process of suffering, there can be deliverance and healing. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about the voyage, I wrote the book of the Voyage of the Dawn Trader, uh, brought this point out. Then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you that, but I was pretty near desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath. Now that I'd no skin on and threw me into the water, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I had started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. You see, the three comforters were seeing a causal link between sin and suffering. Their central argument rested on the point or the fact, from their perspective, Job was suffering because there was sin in his life, which God was in punishing. Elihu sees suffering and the good that can emerge from it. The answer for Job doesn't come in looking back 
but in looking up. He and we must look forward for the divine purpose, not hunt around for causes in the, back, in the past when we're suffering. And we're moving from a backward-looking, causal or retributive understanding of suffering to a forward-looking, redemptive one. The question, when we're suffering, we need to ask is not why, but for what purpose. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, please do remember that point. There is a pain which heals. Not why, but for what purpose. Simone Weil writes, the extreme greatness of Christianity lies in the fact that it doesn't seek a supernatural remedy for suffering, but a supernatural use for it. In commenting on the book of Job, F.I. Anderson said, only God can destroy creatively. Only God can transmute evil into good. The three friends can only view human suffering as a consequence of sin, not as an occasion of grace. Let's try and unpack that a little bit. Let's try and make it a little bit personal because it's the key to finding hope in the darkness. Let's try to move it from a theoretical to practical and personal. And if I'm going through particularly difficult circumstances, usually caused by a coming together of events or people over which I have no control, then it's not a punishment from God but one where he wants to use the situation to grow my trust in him. I don't understand why this is happening, but I will trust that God remains sovereign, in control, and all-knowing, and continue to believe that he can work this for good in my life. This, is, this was what Paul discovered when he asked God to take away the thorn in the flesh. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. All of them suffering. For when I am weak, then I am strong." doesn't seem to make sense, strength through weakness. But it's faith in the God is revealed in the Bible. A God of surprises, a hidden God, who at times makes his presence known, even through apparent absences. A God whose encounters with us prevents us from tidying up every problem corner of our lives into neat, manageable packages. The book of Job brings us faith to faith with this living, dynamic God and invites us to live in his, in his light with all our logical gaps, untidy edges, and struggling faith. Because in Deuteronomy we read, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And our response to that is that we will live by faith, not by sight. We won't always have the answers. Job insisted that he believes in God's justice, but he's coupled this with an insistence on his own vindication. 
God, you've got to sort this situation. Eventually, he says, he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job's learning that he can't take over the running of the universe. He's beginning to look forward longingly to a time when his communion with God would be restored. There would be a resolution of grief when life could begin again, when normality could be restored, and even when, from a different perspective, some meaning could be given to the pain that he had passed through. 37 chapters pass with Job in the darkness, confronted by mystery, some appalling counseling skills and theology, and deep personal anguish. God does show up, speaks to him. Though at first glance, or at first examination, it may seem very disappointing, because God doesn't answer the questions directly, but takes Job on a magical mystery tour of the universe. The heavens, the sea, the stars, tells him to look at the behemoth, the hippopotamus, and Leviathan, the crocodile. He gives no answers directly to Job's questions, no apology for having been quiet or silent for so long, no hint about Satan's wager, no apparent acknowledgement of Job's struggle, Job's struggle. Because you see, you have to look behind the surface and see what is going on. Because first of all, it's the name that is given to God there. It is the name Yahweh that we get the word Jehovah from. And that's the name that's associated with a personal presence of a caring, steadfastly loving and faithful God. Job's fear was that God had abandoned him, but he was on this pilgrimage of faith. God had not let him down. And you're probably aware of the, uh, the story of the footprints in the sand, the two sets of footprints going along. Suddenly there's only one set. The person asked God, during the most troublesome times in my life, there are only one set of footprints. Why did you leave me when I needed you most? And the answer comes back. Those were the times I was carrying you. You see, when we're confronted by evil, injustice, suffering, God's wisdom, power, and justice that he displays as he controls and rules the universe are available to us. Let's draw the threads together. Just skipping on a little bit, Raj. Firstly, we learn from Job that we won't always know or understand why we're going through difficult circumstances. God can use this to deepen our faith even when we're in the dark. We can't presume how God will work in this world or in our lives. We have to be careful not to try to box God in and presume that he will always work in our lives in certain ways. He's a living dynamic God and his power, wisdom and justice are sometimes, rather are always beyond our comprehension. 
Second point to note, bad things happen to good people. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. In Job's suffering, his body, mind, spirit, relationships, emotions, and will were all involved. No part of Job was exempt. All parts are interrelated, and the whole person was affected, through the, though the greatest suffering of all for people can be caused by their faith. The anguish that is felt when God seems to let us die. At those times, we ask the question, why? Not, sorry, we don't ask the question, why? We ask the question, for what purpose? The ultimate purpose from God is to make us more like Jesus so that his glory is revealed. In James, we read that Job's perseverance, or you've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen that the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Even if we can't see it right now, hold on to that truth. Because suffering will end, though we don't know when. We know the Lord will come and transform our wounds into worship. Don't expect quick fixes. There's no simplistic answers. It's a long, arduous journey that will take a lifetime to complete. We can remain people of hope in the darkness, not by ignoring the problems we face or things we don't understand, circumstances that appear to conflict with our belief in a God of power, wisdom, and justice. Stick with God in the darkness. Express your concerns and doubts to him. Ask him to use them for his purposes, to make us more like Christ so that we can follow his example and overcome in spite of suffering and overflow with hope. This is the hope, or sorry, this is the testimony the world will sit up and take notice of. There is hope in darkness because God is with us in it wanting to transform us through it. Paul wrote to the Romans, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In his Christmas broadcast in 1939, four months after the outbreak of World War II, King George VI said, And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness. Put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. With God holding our hand, we can confidently remain filled with hope as we walk through darkness. Amen.